The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 10th, 2023. On this week's show, the athletic Sabrina Merchant will be here to talk about the WNBA's long-awaited Super Team Finals matchup between the Las Vegas Aces and the New York Liberty. Aaron Schatz of the FTN Network will also join us to talk about the New England Patriots' awful start and whether Bill Belichick's job could actually be in jeopardy. And finally, Defector's Dave McKenna will join for a conversation about the famed open-water swimmer Diana Nyad and the adversary committed to exposing her as a fraud. I am in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Our full latest season, One Year 1955, is out now, available for binging or just listening one at a time at your leisure. So check it out. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Do you binge, Stefan? I go one at a time. Though you have to go one at a time, even if you're binging, you can't watch them all <laughs> at the same time. That would be very cacophonous, I think. Uh, when you watch TV, like two at a time, three at a time? Two at a time, yeah, and then I fall asleep. So yeah, two at a time. All right, take it from Stefan. Two at a time, then fall asleep. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Aaron Schatz of FTN Network is going to stick around, and we will go from the Patriots to the 49ers talk about why the Niners are so good, and whether their quarterback, Brock Purdy, is good. To hear that conversation, you have to be a Slate Plus member. As a member, you get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows. You get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash hangupplus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. It's the matchup that everyone's been waiting all season to see, and on Sunday, we got it. The WNBA's two super teams, the Las Vegas Aces and the New York Liberty, in Game 1 of the Finals in Vegas, with LeBron and Tom Brady and Cheryl Swoops all in attendance. The game lived up to its billing for a half, with the Liberty jumping out to a halftime lead behind a crazy shooting performance from reserve Maureen Johannes. But in the second half, the Aces ran away with it 99-82, to Game two is set for Wednesday night, and joining us to look backwards and forwards is Sabrina Merchant. You can read Sabrina's stuff at The Athletic, and you can listen to her on The Athletic's women's basketball show. Sabrina, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. So there are obviously great players up and down both rosters, but going in, it would make sense, as you did in your preview piece, to focus on the last two MVPs, the Aces' Asia Wilson, who won the trophy in 2022, and the Liberty's Brianna Stewart, who took it this season. But Sabrina, game one was really decided in the backcourt. Um, the Aces' three star guards, Jackie Young, Kelsey Plum, and Chelsea Gray, just annihilated the Liberty starting backcourt court of Sabrina Ionescu and Courtney Vandersloot. Were you surprised that that turned out to be such a huge mismatch? Absolutely. I think anytime you have a margin of 72 points for the Aces' three guards versus 28 from Benaj Eleni, Courtney Vandersloot, and Sabrina Ionescu, like, that's just the kind of margin that you don't expect from two teams who are this evenly matched. I mean, you think about just the pedigree of these two teams coming into this matchup. Courtney Vandersloot, one of the great point guards of her generation, just like Chelsea Gray. Sabrina Unescu, one of the great three-point shooters of her generation, just like Kelsey Plum. And then Vinay Jelani and Jackie Young, who are both such physical forwards who can do a little bit of everything on the court. Uh, you definitely expect uh, a little more parity in that grouping than what we saw in Game 1. And I do think that 
a lot of it was New York just not playing up to its capabilities, but any sort of advantage I thought that the Liberty might have had in terms of being able to stop the Aces, which we saw during some of their August meetings, is kind of out the window at this point. UNESCO only took seven shots, I believe. Um, and that is just uncharacteristic and just really shocking that the Aces defenders were able to make it so hard on them. But on the flip side, it was also the the defensive inability of UNESCO and Vandersloot to shut down the Vegas guards, um, who made 11 of 12 shots from the field and were four of four from three-point land when uh, UNESCO or Vandersloot were guarding them. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about the Aces defense, and Sandy Brondello said it was about as good as she'd ever seen it during the second half, and they still gave up 82 points. And New York scored 82 points in the Commissioner's Cup game you know, about two months ago when they won because they limited the Aces to 63 points. What I'm trying to say is I don't think the Liberty's offense was the reason that they struggled because they still put up 82 points. But the fact that the Liberty guards, as you mentioned, could not do anything to stop the Aces guards is really the issue. And, you know, we thought that might be an issue when they built their team coming into the season because Vandersloot and UNESCO never really had reputations for being stout defenders. But they managed to make it work over the course of the year. And they Liberty finished the regular season with the third best defensive rating in the league. They shut down the Mystics. They did pretty well against the Sun. But the Aces are just, you know, a beast of another level. Like, this is just a collection of talent unlike anything that's really ever been assembled in the WNBA. And when you use your best defender on Chelsea Gray, and she still ends up with 20 points and 9 assists, and then what do you do about the other guards who also get 26 points apiece? Like, there's a lot of questions that the New York Liberty have to answer, and I think we're going to see a lot more junk defenses being thrown at the Aces just because individually I'm not sure that their one-on-one defense is good enough to keep Plum, keep Jackie Young in front of them, and then especially if Benajelani's tasked with Chelsea Gray, like I just don't see how UNESCO and Courtney Vandersloot are going to be able to handle everything that is Jackie Young and Kelsey Plum. I do wonder if Kayla Thornton comes in and plays in some bigger lineups just to add a little more defensive integrity. Because again, I don't really think the offense was a problem. Like you can look at Sab only taking seven shots and you can look at Courtney Vandersloot only scoring 11 points or 10 points, I believe. Um, But again, they got to 82. So that's totally fine. It's just the plot was completely lost on the other end of the floor. (laughs) You wrote about Jackie Young after the game, a star player, obviously, but not the biggest name in the series, in a series with just enormous marquee names. Um, What is it about her that makes her so great? And what is it um, that allowed her to, you know, she had a tied for game high with uh, 26 points. Like, why was she kind of such a a key in game one? Well, the thing with Jackie, and she'll readily admit to this, is even though she guards the opposing team's best player, the opposing team's best perimeter defender is not usually assigned to her. Like That is usually the player who guards Chelsea Gray, which we're seeing in this New York Liberty matchup as well. So Jackie Young gets openings because it's a lesser defender who's being you know, attached to her. And that means that if you sag off of her just a little bit, she's a 43% three-point shooter. She's very comfortable pulling up, launching. If you try to stay too attached to her, get too tight, she'll drive right past you. And she is so strong that she can absorb contact. Becky Hammond calls her her baby LeBron mode when she gets to the basket because she just bounces off of defenders and it looks like she's not getting hit even though she is. And then she's also an excellent free throw shooter. So if you send her to the line, that's an additional problem. So the fact that she's able of scoring, capable of scoring at all three levels, you know, from three-point range, from the mid-range, inside the paint, there just isn't really a good way of, you know, picking your poison because she's capable of doing everything. And when she's aggressive and realizes that she has these openings, I'm just not really sure what you do to stop her. Like, we don't talk about her as much as the other Aces players, and I understand why that is, but 
it's insane that a player this talented who was the number one pick in the draft, you know, just four years ago can kind of skate under the radar because she is that good at what she's doing. Well, part of the reason she skates under the radar is that two of probably the greatest players in the history of women's basketball are on each of these teams. Uh, you did a preview of Asia Wilson versus Brianna Stewart and in this matchup, and you made, a, I thought, a really some really interesting parallels. I mean, it's, it's not the first time someone has made the Magic Bird parallel, but when you look at the history of this league, you point out how there's never really been a rivalry between two players who are both faces of the league, who offer these contrasting styles and backgrounds and even regional rivalry. Yeah, I mean, I don't pretend to be like a full expert on the history of the WNBA, but I do think that the league has kind of shot itself in the foot sometimes in terms of not capitalizing on potential individual rivalries. But I, I would hope that at least this is one that is so obvious and just staring them right in the face in terms of, you know, the UConn versus South Carolina. That's already a rivalry in and of itself at the college level. You've got, you know, Brianna Stewart, who is white, and Asia Wilson, who is black. And that raises some magic word parallels as well. And the fact that they are on two opposite ends of the coast, it just allows for the WNBA to engage in some real interesting, you know, like, they can tap into a lot of areas in the country is what I'm trying to say. Like there's just more potential for people to want to latch onto one of these teams because they represent different parts of the country. And they always win. They just always win. Like we had an opportunity to talk to Brianna Stewart heading into game one. And someone just asked her the question, like you were 4-0 at UConn in championship games. You were 2-0 with the Seattle Storm in the WNBA finals. Did you lose at all in Europe? And she sort of just stood there and thought to herself and She's like, you know, well, I got hurt one year and we lost in the finals. <laughs> the year that she tore her Achilles in 2019 and wasn't able to play the full series. And Asia Wilson, it's not like she's hurting for hardware either, right? Like she brought the first national championship to South Carolina. She's won two World Cup medals as a member of Team USA. She's, you know, brought the first titles of the Las Vegas Aces. So that you have two players who are so successful, who are going to keep running into each other because that's just what's going to happen. There's only 12 teams. They're going to keep meeting each other in the playoffs. I think it's really cool that they play the same position. They have to guard each other. They keep forcing each other to elevate, you know, one after the other. Like, Asia Wilson won the MVP last year. It was so close with Stewie. I think she had an even better season this year. And you saw a better season from Stewie, too, which is why she ended up winning MVP. So it's just, it's just awesome that they keep matching up with one another. They keep forcing each other to elevate their games and that we're not even talking about them as the lead is just mind-blowing to me because of how much other talent is in this series. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. I think the two things that are kind of arguing against this being a real magic versus bird one-on-one individual rivalry that'll elevate the WNBA, number one, they're not the primary ball handlers for their teams. And I I think um, big players in the NBA or WNBA often don't get the same kind of love and shine as guards do. Um, Uh And number two, I just think their teams are too talented. Like it's like the preview, like the preview was great. It was smart. You made a lot of really good points. And then the game happens and they're not, you know, the leading scorers in the the game. Like there's just so much talent and it, it just feels like this is more of a matchup between the aces and the Liberty than between individuals, which maybe it would have been if their supporting cast, like if their supporting cast were slightly worse, then maybe they would still make the finals just because they're so great. But in this case, just these teams, it just feels like it's about these teams and not about any individuals, even if they're the two best players in the world. 
Yeah, the ball handler point is interesting. I hadn't really considered that, but I feel like the Lakers and Celtics produced a lot of Hall of Famers. You know, like there was enough <laughs> talent surrounding Magic and Bird. It's true. And that true. seemed to work out just fine. Yeah, I think this series is going to require some sort of, you know, dramatic performance from one of them. Like they both had very good games in game one, you know. And I think they kind of balanced sure. each other out. And it really was because of that disparity in the backcourt that the Aces won this so easily. But, you know, you look at even last year when they played each other in the WNBA semifinals, like Stewie was putting up 30 points at least in all of those games. And Asia had to had to match her beat for beat, too. So I think we're one of them is going to have to be like a breakout performance in one of these upcoming games, I think, for that to retake center stage. But I think it's coming. They're just too good for that not to happen. And yet, for all of the talk all season about how these teams were destined to meet, they've now played each other six times. None of the games has ended up being closer than nine points. Yeah, what's the deal? Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> we want to see like a we want to see buzzer beaters in overtime. What's interesting is the average margin of victory during those first five games was about 19 points. So this one was closer. We got a little bit better. <laughs> the first half was amazing. It was really great yeah. basketball, and it was. And then the second half was. I mean, the aces were great. It's kind of a disappointment. I would agree. I I thought it was kind of a disappointment too that New York did not respond to the punch that Vegas came out with at the start of the third quarter. But I think when you have teams with this level of offensive firepower, and we kind of see it on the men's side as well, if one team just starts hitting shots, they just erupt so quickly that it's hard to regain contact. Um, and that kind of works in both ways where like you can easily get back into a game. But I think the combination of the home court, uh, just the fact that it was like a parade to the basket for Kelsey Plum and Jackie Young and Chelsea Gray – I would love to think we're going to get closer games, but like all of the evidence suggests to me that we're not. But I don't want four blowouts in a row or whatever it's going to end up being. I really don't know why they can't keep up with one another because it's not like they just played blowouts all season long. Like, yeah, the Aces had a great margin of victory. They just won their last game against the Dallas Wings by three points, you know, to get to the WNBA Finals. Every game with Connecticut and New York was, or not every game, but like three out of the four games were pretty close. So it is weird to me that they can't seem to maintain with one another. It's almost like, oh, well, this one's out of hand. Let's just pack it in and try again next time. But the Liberty haven't lost two games in a row all year. So I guess yeah. we're due for a New York blowout next game. And since it's best three out of five, if the you know Aces come out and have another great performance at home, like the series is almost over at that point. I mean, it it should be a best of seven, but uh, yeah. what are we going to no do? No WNBA team has ever come back from 0-2 in a best of five series. Hmm. Well, we will hope that uh, that <laughs> maybe that could change. The big story this week before the final started was expansion. It's been something that just players, fans, everyone has been calling for for years upon years upon years. The WNBA seems to be patting itself on the back now that it's adding a single team to the Bay Area. What did you make of the announcement? What do you think of it being in the Bay Area? Kind of what's your take on the whole thing? Well, I think a key part of the announcement was that Commissioner Kathy Engelbert also said that they expect to add another team by 2025. So at least two more teams, you know, 24 more roster spots potentially, although, you know, both of the teams in the finals are only carrying 11. So let's say 22 roster spots at least that are being added to the league. And Portland is the rumored leader in the clubhouse there. Exactly. I was kind of hoping for a team in the South. Atlanta is the only team that's propping up basically an entire region of the United States whereas there are already four teams in the Pacific time, three and a half if you consider Phoenix half Pacific, half mountain. So adding the Bay and Portland kind of seems overkill to me, but then again, I'm not going to complain about more places that I get to travel to in my neck of the woods. Uh, I do think that what was really important to the WNBA in this expansion round was finding the right ownership partners. Like Kathy Engelbert has mentioned a bunch of buzzwords in terms of what they were looking for. It seems to me once the Warriors wanted to get involved, 
that's what made the difference. And if a billionaire ownership group in Portland wants to get involved, that's going to make the difference because there's been this sort of battle between old and new in the WNBA where the, you know, the new owners like Josiah, like Mark Davis, like Matt Ishbia in Phoenix are trying to propel the league forward, trying to use whatever monetary advantage they can. And there are all these competitive balance measures that are in the collective bargaining agreement that help the smaller, the I don't want to say poorer, but the less financially wealthy ownership groups stay competitive with everybody else. And I think the more billionaires you can add to the equation to help tilt the balance, it'll just help improve player experience and let the league, you know, move forward in a direction that I think all the players really want. And what you're seeing in this finals is these two, as you mentioned, billionaire owners with these elite facilities that they have through marketing, acumen, and good relations with their local communities are packing these arenas. The what was the what was the atmosphere like in Vegas? And on the flip side, in Brooklyn, they had three thousand people at Barclays Center for a watch party for this game. Yeah, how cool was that? I didn't even realize there was a watch party until later in the day when I saw the videos. And three thousand people. I mean, that's the attendance that some people get at games for WNBA games and other markets. So that is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, I've been attending games in Las Vegas all season. This is easily the loudest I have felt it in the arena, without a doubt, even compared to All-Star Weekend, even compared to the Commissioner's Cup. I was sitting next to my colleague, literally right next to him, and I could not hear what he was trying to say as we were like working out what we were trying to write. Uh, it was just an insane environment. Uh, you obviously mentioned at the top some of the star power that was in attendance. Uh Ashanti performed at halftime, which for my age group is just <laughs> incredibly cool. And I imagine also cool for the, the player age group too. It's just such a vibe in Las Vegas. Like this is the place where people want to be, you know. Obviously the the Brooklyn Nets and the Los Angeles Lakers, they were in town for a preseason NBA game that's taking place in Las Vegas, but they didn't all have to be there. And yet you had a really large contingent of players. Admittedly, the Brooklyn Nets and New York Liberty are under the same ownership group, so there is a little bit more synergy there. But like LeBron James doesn't just naturally show up at Sparks games, but he shows up for the Aces because this is an environment that you want to be in. And you just see that more and more with the way the Aces have ingratiated themselves into the community. Like, this is a hot ticket, a really hot ticket. The games are already sold out for the finals, even a potential game five, should it come to that. Though, based on how good the Aces looked, I shudder to think that we'll get to that point. But it's just, it's really cool to see a team that, you know, even last year, only averaged about 5,600 people per game. They upped that to 9,500 this year. So the winning matters, <laughs> definitely matters. And they've done a great job of just making their presence felt in this city. Last question for me. When we had you on before the playoffs started, you said, and, and rightly so, that um, there is nothing standing in the way of this finals matchup. Um, there were some exciting games, as you noted, the Sun were competitive. And so I'm just wondering, is it your sense that the other teams in the league are watching this, looking at what the Liberty and Aces are doing and thinking they're going to run the league for the next five years? Or were there things that happened during the season? Is there going to be stuff that's happening in the offseason where teams are going to think we actually have a chance to beat these guys if we do X, Y, Z, or we there were a few things that we were able to do that maybe were a little bit closer than we thought. You know, the thing that I like about the WNBA is that rookies come in and are able to contribute so much right away. And we have this potentially incredible draft class coming in in 2024 that could really shift some fortunes for teams in the immediate future. Uh, also, you know, Brandon Stewart's a free agent this offseason. John Quill Jones is a free agent this offseason. Uh, who knows if Candace Parker is going to come back? Like the 
core of these rosters could stay in place, but I don't think it's, you know, a given that we're going to have the same level of star power, the same level of continuity on both of these teams going forward. And I also think, you know, we, we talked about the Bay Area expansion team earlier, like kind of lost in the shuffle that same day was Phoenix announcing that they were building their own dedicated practice facility for the Phoenix Mercury. And that builds the, I think that adds the total to four um, in the WNBA of teams that have their own facility. And that's not even including the Nets, the Lynx, and the Mystics who all practice with their NBA teams and share some pretty awesome facilities too. So I think the fact that these two teams are meeting, it's not so much like, oh my God, we can't keep up with them. It's what can we do to really get into this arms race? And you're seeing that happen in Phoenix. Um, Chicago, Seattle, both laying the groundwork for their own practice facilities. They both re-signed big stars uh, to extensions at the end of the regular season. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that this is exactly what the league is going to look like in May of next year. But I do think that the fact that we saw this coming is sort of providing a template for what other teams have to do to get in the picture next year. And as you said, if the idea of superstars changing teams more frequently starts to get normalized in the WNBA, it's going to be more of a situation where teams can improve more quickly as in the NBA, right? Exactly. Player movement is uh, good for business during the offseason because everyone's talking about it. And then it also just creates more shakeups so that a Seattle turns into New York right away. <laughs> Game two, Wednesday night uh, in Vegas. Sabrina Merchant will be there. You can read her stuff in The Athletic and listen to her on The Athletic's Women's Basketball Show podcast. Uh, Sabrina, thank you so much. Yeah, anytime. Up next, Aaron Schatz on what comes next for the Patriots and Bill Belichick. On Sunday afternoon in Foxborough, the New England Patriots got shut out 34-0 by the New Orleans Saints to fall to 1-4 on the season. To get a sense of the mood in Pat's land, here's an exchange between journalist Greg Bedard and New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick in the post-game press conference. Uh, Bill, you said you guys need to start over. Um, ha- have, have you ever had to do that before, five games in the season, just for reference? I mean, is, is it something new? Yeah, I've done it before. What what does that entail, starting over? Starting over. The eloquent Bill Belichick. Uh, starting over is not a bad idea, given that Sunday's skunking was the second worst loss in Belichick's NFL head coaching career. And his worst loss is not exactly a distant memory. That one came the week before, when the Pats got drilled 38-3 by the Dallas Cowboys. Joining us now is Aaron Schatz. And speaking of starting over, Aaron was with Football Outsiders for a very long time, you might recall. He is now the chief analytics officer for the FTN Network. And if you're looking for Aaron's writing, you can find it on ESPN. If you're looking for his proprietary NFL stats like DVOA and DR, you can now find them with a Stats Plus subscription to FTN. Aaron, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me here. I wish it was under better Patriots circumstances. (laughs) Yes, a biased Patriots fan, as many people in the comments have told you over decades. Um, We're going to get to the big questions about the state of the franchise and of Belichick's career in a bit, but I'd love to just start out by establishing exactly how bad is this team. 
It's bad, but it's not – it's two games, right? So, I mean, people have said, oh, well, they've lost a bunch of games going back to the middle of last season. But a lot of those were close losses. Like their first couple losses this year were close to good teams. They lost close to Philadelphia. They lost close to Miami, although that game was not as really as close as the final score. But they held Miami so, to 24 points, which is impressive. Yeah, they held Miami to 24 points, which given what Miami has done to other teams is impressive. So this is not like 1990 to 1992. Those teams were horrible. I mean, they were horrible from the jump. They were horrible for the whole year. They were horrible for years. They went like 1-15. and 15. This team is not going to go 1-15. and 15. They're not that bad. But they're like the 25th or 26th best team in the NFL right now. And that's not what Patriots fans are used to. This isn't a very good team on either side of the ball, though. Um, they've had Mac Jones, the quarterback, has had huge problems, it seems. He's been benched in the end of uh, the last those two blowout games. Um, they don't really have any star players. Um, their, their kicking game kind of sucks, too. And that's been Bill Belichick's favorite part of football, it seems, at some points in his career. So if they're not that bad, how are they not that bad exactly? I mean, there's just other teams that are worse. I mean, by our numbers, like the worst team in the league right now is the New York Giants because they can't stop giving up sacks and their defense is horrific. Uh, the Patriots' defense is, I think, still average or a little bit above average, even without Matthew Judon and Christian Gonzalez, who both got hurt. Uh, the kicking game thing is incredible. There is a streak where in our DVOA numbers for special teams, the Patriots were above average every single year from 1995 to 2020. That's from before Belichick. And then they were average in 2021, and then they were the worst in the league in 2022, and they were the worst in the league so far this year. And this is a team that allocates money to pay specific special teams specialists, not kickers. I mean, like gunners and blockers and they're still terrible in that area. It's like if there was an example of the idea, if you want to argue that Belichick has lost it at this point, the fact that this thing that is so important to him is now the worst in the league for two straight years is a good piece of evidence. So um, one of the things that's happened over the last few years is that Belichick has gotten the old gang back together, bringing in whether it's Matt Patricia or Bill O'Brien. And one of the critiques that I've seen is that um, Belichick is kind of falling back on the old ways, old ways of doing things, when you have all of these kind of young coaches all around the league, innovative minds who have passed them by. What do you think of that critique and of just the, um, the fact that they've brought in a bunch of coaches from previous eras, seemingly trying to revive the old formula for success, and it just doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, I think the critique is accurate, especially when it comes to Matt Patricia last year. Like that, putting him in charge of the offense was a terrible, terrible nepotism decision. Uh, Bill O'Brien, if you look at the offense this year, the results are not better, but the scheme and the design are better than last year. At least it looks like a like an offense where the players are failing rather than looking like we have no idea how these plays are connected to each other. What are you even trying to do here? And I feel like O'Brien is smart enough to try to take a little bit from some of those young minds 
around the league. But overall, the desire to bring back old coaches has not been a positive for this franchise. And that's going to end up in owner Robert Kraft's lap because he's going to have to make some sort of decision here. I mean, if the Patriots go, what, 5-12, and 6-11, and 11, even 7-10 and 10 this season, that is not a... A, a glowing track record for Belichick in the now five years it'll be after the season since Tom Brady left. So if you're Nostradamusing the Patriots here, Aaron, I mean, what looks like a path forward? Persuading Belichick to bring in some younger minds, taking away some of the player personnel responsibilities from him, or doing what Belichick has done many times in his career? firing the guy like on the field. Yeah, I think that they're not going to convince him to change his ways. I feel like it is more likely that they could persuade him to retire than persuade him to change his ways or uh, persuade him to resign and go to another team. And then we can talk about at this point, if you're another team, do you want Belichick or do you feel like he's still too stuck in his ways? Part of the problem is that he is the GM and the coach, and his decisions as a GM have been poor for the last couple of years, and you can't replace him as GM without replacing him as coach, and you don't – I understand they – it would be really hard to publicly fire the guy, given his incredible track record and what he's meant to this franchise and to the whole region. I think he's too good a coach. I feel like he's still too good a coach to go like 3-14, and 14, which is honestly what they need to get a really good quarterback and reset things. So unless you want to just be on this like, you know, treadmill of 6-10, and 6-11 and 11 seasons for the, you know, future, you've got to do something at this point. But it's going to be really hard for Kraft to do. So the thing that's hanging over all of this is Belichick's chase of the all-time wins record. He's a little bit further behind if you just count regular season wins. But um, he's, I think, 17 away from Don Shula if you include postseason wins. And so, you know, the the great coaches like Shula, like Tom Landry, didn't exactly sprint across the finish line at the ends of their careers. We've seen it in college as well. Great coaches, um, once you get, and Belichick is over 70, um, you know, that seems like the rush of wins that seems like it came so easily in the younger days just kind of stops. And so, you know, there, this is a franchise that has, if not prided itself, at least one of the hallmarks of it has been a lack of sentimentality. And I thought, Mark Maskey in the Washington Post made an interesting argument, Aaron, which is that this kind of chorus of do your job in Foxborough, um, you know, why should it not extend to the head coach and the general manager? If we're thinking about the, the Patriots way and the lack of sentimentality, then this would be the kind of ultimate show of it. You haven't been productive in the last X number of years. We don't care about some wins record. Like, you're out of here if you're just producing losing season after losing season. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I'm sure that there is a little bit of a fear in Kraft's mind that Belichick would go to, I don't know, the Los Angeles Chargers or something and all of a sudden have success again. And then it would be like, well, you didn't keep Brady and he went elsewhere and had success. And then you didn't keep Belichick and he went elsewhere and had success. What are you doing? That being said, you're absolutely right. He's not performing. And the, I mean, 
if, if you said to them, you can get Belichick to go along with anything, then they would say what we would want Belichick to do is get himself a GM to do the GM decisions and get himself a young offensive coordinator from the McVeigh, Shanahan, McDaniel School of Offensive Coordinators and move forward like that. But I just don't think they could get Belichick to agree to either of those things. And that leaves Kraft where? It's hard to know what Kraft is thinking. My guess is that he will fire Belichick, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, certainly, that he... He he's going to just like let them limp along with three years of mediocrity to get to have Belichick get the record because of what Belichick has meant to him and meant to the franchise over so many years. I mean, this was, you know, 20 years ago, this was like whatever the 29th or 30th NFL franchise. And now it's like the second or third as far as value. I mean, uh, Brady and Belichick have uh, given Kraft a lot of money over the years. So. The Mac Jones thing is a little bit confusing because he was good or has been good or has at least produced good results for um, part of his young career. Rookie season looked promising. He actually looked okay during those early games this season that you mentioned, Aaron. It's only been the last couple of games where he's fallen off the cliff. That, That being said, you know, I think Bill Barnwell did a good job in ESPN this week and others have noted that he has some serious issues as a player, does not throw deep, does not perform well under pressure, um, not pressure situations, but like under blitz, I believe. Uh, You can confirm that, Aaron. Do you feel like his lack of development is an indictment on the Patriots, or is he just a guy who has serious limitations, and when he doesn't have good talent around him, bad offensive line play, et cetera, this is just not a setup where somebody with his kind of skill set can succeed? Yeah, he throws deep. He just doesn't do it well. (laughs) (laughs) Like he hasn't completed any deep passes all season. Yeah. Oh, he does it. He just, yeah, he just fails at it. Um, I think that it's sort of a combination. When you saw what he did as a rookie, you were like, okay, well, we thought he was going to be a high floor, low ceiling guy. So here's the high floor. It can get a little bit better than this. And then it didn't. And then it got worse. So there is a lack of development. But at the same time, I think everybody always felt that it was likely that he was limited, right? Like you take chances on quarterbacks in the first round because we all know quarterback scouting is very random and you could be wrong. So take a guy and it turns out that you were wrong and he is a stellar quarterback. So you take that risk. But uh, we're two and a half years into this now and it's clear he's not. I think Mac Jones will have a long career in this league as a backup, but this is his last year as a starting quarterback uh, for anybody, probably. And that brings that brings us back to what do you do if you're the Patriots? Um, looks like a deep quarterback class coming out of college, but if they finish 7 and 10, they're not likely to get one of those top picks. Um, they have other limitations um, on the offensive side of the ball, and the free agent class of quarterbacks doesn't look terrific either. So are they just stuck on this treadmill that maybe well, argues for letting Belichick stick around? I mean, let me jump in here quickly. I mean, this is a franchise who really understands the value of draft picks, has been really good at right. accumulating picks over the years. And in this case, it seems like the smart, savvy, analytically minded thing to do would be to tank at this point in the season and try to get Caleb Williams or Drake May. 
Right. And but they've also not had to develop a quarterback in 25 years. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, the thing about tanking is that coaches and players don't tank. Right. GMs tank. GMs make the decision to change coaches and players in such a way that the team will hopefully be bad for a year and get a really good draft. So GM Belichick would have to convince Coach Belichick to tank is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, basically, that's that's what he would need to do. And the other thing about the NFL is Mike Tanier, who writes for me and uh, the messenger dot com, has pointed this out. You really can't tank in the NFL for more than a year because rookie contracts last four years. If you tank for two years, like you're drafting all those young players and then wasting half their careers. So if you want to tank, it's got to be this year. Like this is the tank year. Do it like now. But how do you convince the players to do that? Players don't go out there and not try. You'd probably have to fire Belichick. Like Kraft would have to fire Belichick in order to tank. And I don't think firing him in the middle of the season, no matter how bad it gets, would be likely no, to happen. No, that's not craft style at all. Right, yeah. and you'd also just have to outright bench Mac Jones, because Mac Jones is good enough to win some games, but it certainly doesn't look like Brady Zappi is good enough to win a bunch of games. I mean, honestly... Bailey the, Zappi. They Bailey wish he was Zappi. Brady. Sorry, they wish he was that Brady. bad. I don't even remember his first name. <laughs> the Ju- the Judon and Gonzalez injuries make it easier to make this the tank year, right? Judon is the best player on the defense. Gonzalez is maybe the third or fourth best player on the defense, likely to be the second best player by the time we get to next year. And so if you want to tank and hope the defense doesn't win games for you, this would be the year to do it. So I was talking to a Patriots fan, friend of mine, and he said, not jokingly, that he thinks the thing that's going to get Belichick to go is that um, when the Patriots fail to make the playoffs for the second year in a row, that makes them eligible to appear on Hard Knocks. Like, you can't refuse to be on Hard Knocks. And he thinks that that would actually push Belichick into retirement. And again, he was not joking about that. Just imagine Lee Schreiber announcing, it's a tough year for new Patriots head coach Bobby Slowick as he tries to replace Bill Belichick. This Tuesday night on HBO, Hard Knocks. Yes, no, I mean, you're right. I think he absolutely, that is Belichick's... Freaking nightmare going on hard knocks. He would much rather be coaching Justin Herbert in Los Angeles. My God, imagine the cutoff hoodies he could wear. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so last thing. Maybe let's end on an optimistic scenario. What will happen or what has to happen for him to turn around with the Patriots and for him to pass Shula's record as a Patriots head coach? They have to be terrible enough this year to get a top quarterback and then have Kraft feel like, okay, now that we have Drake May, like I'm not going to think they're going to get Caleb Williams, but let's think maybe like Drake May. Okay, Belichick is still a really good coach. Let's see if he can develop this great youngster. It's almost like the worse they do, the more likely it is Belichick stays because at least then there's hope for the future if they get someone like Drake May. Aaron Schatz is the chief analytics officer for the FTN network. You can get his uh, invaluable NFL stats with a Stats Plus subscription to FTN. And for Slate Plus members, Aaron's going to stick around with uh, us for our bonus segment. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Up next, Defectors Dave McKenna on Diana Nyad and the adversary determined to prove that she's a fraud.
25 years ago last week, long-distance swimmer Diana Nyad went on the Roseanne Bar Show and on set with Jackie Joyner-Kersey and Mary Lou Retton told a story about a key moment in her life that happened in 1968. I was walking down the pool deck at the Olympic trials and this was going to be it. I was going to swim a 100-meter race, last about a minute, and either wear the USA uniform and stand up on an Olympic medal stand or not and go on to the rest of my life. And 10 years of the hours Mary Lou was just talking about, eight hours a day, that's, that's no exaggeration. Eight hours a day. When you're eight and nine and 10 years old, and as Mary Lou said, no one makes you do that. That comes right. from guts and it comes from something deep, deep inside you. And I walked down that pool deck, I was scared to death. You're, you're so scared because you have given up childhood, adolescence, your family's given up a lot. Um, and this one little moment is just like the weight of the world on your shoulders. Nyad went on to say that a 16-year-old friend told her that day to swim with your shoulders and your guts and your heart. Nyad said she didn't qualify for the Olympics, but has since lived every day by those inspirational words. The audience ate it up. There was only one problem. Diana Nyad didn't swim in the 1968 Olympic trials. And according to a former competitive swimmer named Daniel Slosberg, the Olympic story is just one small part of what he calls Nyad's five-decade history of lies. Our friend Dave McKenna of Defector told the tale of the swimmer and her debunker in a piece published last week. Dave is here now. Hi, Dave. Hey, how are you guys doing? We're good. Nyad's past and Slosberg's pursuit of it is getting attention now because of a new feature film about Nyad's attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida in 2013, a movie that stars Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. Let's start with a refresher, Dave. Who is Diana Nyad and what are her claims to fame? Well, her, her claim to fame is mostly being famous uh, as, as uh, the, the marathon swimming community will tell you, but she, uh, she has been in the media more than any swimmer in my lifetime. It's an amazing tale of like when you, you just accept that she's famous, but until this started looking into this, uh, Daniel Slosberg, uh, uh, story, uh, who's a very fascinating guy. I just assumed she had, was very accomplished and she did do one thing that, uh, that is, is worthy of. Uh, she swam around, Manhattan, assuming she did it legitimately, which now no one trusts anything she says she did. But uh, she swam around Manhattan in 1975 faster than anyone had ever done that before. And that got her in you know, New York in, in the era of Evil Knievel, because uh, marathon swimming is seen more as a daredevil pursuit back then than a, an athletic endeavor, really. And uh, she was hailed as a, as a big, uh, you know, as a hero and, and it got her jobs uh, with the wide world of sports. And she was on ABC superstars. I mean, she was just became a celebrity for celebrity's sake, pretty much. But whatever she had done wasn't good enough for her. So she had to embellish everything she'd ever done from adding high school state championships to be saying she was first at everything when she knew in her heart she wasn't first, she knew in her head she wasn't first, yet she'd just repeat that she was the first person to ever do this and the best person to ever do this. And it, it it's a fascinating tale of like when, you know, when it's when one is never good enough for oneself. Uh, that seems to be the Diana Nyad story. So as you note in your piece, going back to as far as 1970, there is this kind of push, not by her, but by men, in the long distance swimming world to make her into a star, to get her on Wide World of Sports, to use her 
beauty to use her Greek heritage, even though it's just her stepfather who is Greek, um, but to kind of make her into this figure that she became, somebody who is famous. And it's also from the very beginning that these it's not like she's racing in a lane next to other people and there's like a scoreboard and a time and she touches first. It's these sort of contrived media kind of events, swimming a long distance or swimming around a, a thing. So from the very beginning, and it's not just from her, there's this idea of just creating this kind of myth and mystique around her. Endurance sports, I guess, you know, it's usually, you know, it's a it's a battle with oneself. You're not usually considered a competitor in these in the cuz like there's no it, like what you know, there's no course from Cuba to 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 Florida. She's not racing no, against anyone or there's nobody no. in there with her. You you do it to like pushing the species kind of, you know, you do something that has never, you know, been done before. But D- Diana Nyad, like always, she seemed to be doing it for the gl- for the fame, you know, for the glory. Whereas, uh, you know, you don't get the sense that the uh, the free solo guy uh, uh, started climbing up mountains to get famous. You know, he did it to 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 conquer something in his head. Yet Diana Nyad, it, it just seems very contrived. Everything she did was to get attention. And even when she was swimming in lanes, when she was a teenager, um, she would go on to exaggerate or outright make up stuff. Uh, the 1968 Olympic trials is is one example. And even in that little clip that we played, Dave, and you excerpt a much longer bit of it uh, in your defector piece, you know, she says, oh, swimming eight, nine, 10, training eight, nine, 10 hours a day from age eight, nine, 10. Um, she didn't start swimming competitively until she was 13. Daniel Slosberg later proved. Everything she says seems to be made up. And that and that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I find that fascinating. I mean, she's ultimately, I guess, a, a very, a very sad figure to me. I don't, I don't know her personally, but this is a very sad kind of thing. Yet there are chapters in there, in my story uh, and in her life, where where she does use this fabulism uh, to turn on people, people who she might consider competitors, um, and that and the meanness involved in that validates any <laughs> any kind of criticism i think uh of her i mean like any kind any if you want to go out she's fair game not only because she's famous uh if she were just famous and flawed i think it could see be seen as bullying but she's famous flawed and kind of uh venomous she has gone after people that adds a, a level of uh i don't know vulnerability is the right word but uh makes her a, a fair target this stuff has been out there forever, like the 1979 Sports Illustrated story. Like, it's also fascinating that endurance swimming would get, you know, pretty good coverage in Sports Illustrated in the 60s and 70s, which is also like, who thinks of endurance swimming anymore? But uh, like that, that somebody that the Olympic coach would sing, single Diana Nyad out in a big profile in Sports Illustrated as a fraud. Yeah, this is Doc Councilman, the swimming coach, said this pub- publicly in, in the 70s. And, you know, the thing I think you were alluding to earlier was that there was a, a swimmer from uh, Ohio. You said, describe him as a retired Ohio baker, Walter Ponish. A cookie maker, Walter Ponish, yeah, um, yeah. Who swam from Cuba to Florida in 1978, around the time that Nyad was trying to do one of her, I guess, first Cuba to Florida swims, and she attacked him in 
the press um, really kind of viciously, it seems like. Incredibly viciously. And and there was also like she had already sold sponsorships and um, the and the media rights uh, to to her swim when Walter, who had this idea years before she ever came up with it, you know, she got the whole idea to swim from Cuba from him because he had been working with the Cuban government and the U.S. government to try to get because, you know, this is a very adversarial relationship between, uh, obviously, the Soviet Union and the United States back then. Cuba was closed off to all things American. You couldn't just show up in, in Havana and, and jump off the shore. He had to work through the Cuban government for years and finally got permission. And then Diana Nyad steps in and uh, she says she's going to do it. And she's got all the New York media on her side. And and it, it is fascinating to read, like, because this Walter... Walter Painish, uh, he he was just a simple dude, a simple guy. Uh, he was a cookie maker in Ohio, and he was had none of the media savvy that Diane and I had had. And uh, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't have a team. She had a team. She had uh, you know this fame. He had nothing. And so all of a sudden, he set out to to say he was he said he was swimming to improve relations between Cuba and and uh, the United States. Uh, and uh, for all his, uh, you know, the good deeds in his heart, he just was being attacked as a fraud out of nowhere by Nyad and all her people. And really, really mean stuff, if you read the accounts, the contemporaneous accounts. And, and like, what did he do to deserve that? And, and then so he makes his swim. And I, this was the clip. I remember seeing a clip from a Florida paper on the day when he landed uh, after uh, he landed in, in Florida at the end of his endurance swim and he's all worn out and everything and the, the reporter finds him lying down and moaning about diana naya saying she lies she lies like you know like it, it, as if you know on his deathbed almost that was his rosebud was going to be uh she lies Nyad wound up settling with him for her comments the there were there were lawsuits um and they reached an out-of-court settlement so painish ends up making it to cuba Nyad does not in that earlier attempt. She does succeed in 2013. And that's when I think a lot of folks who know who Diana Nyad is today know her because of that 2013 Cuba swim. It's what the movie is about. This is not like decade later retrospective. From the moment that she did that swim, there were people raising questions about it, saying that it wasn't you know, properly scrutinized and, and all of this. So what can you tell us about that Cuba swim and what we know and, and what we don't know? Like, uh, you reap what you sow. She faced the, the scrutiny that she had put on Walter Painish. And Walter Painish didn't earn that out of, you know, she there was nothing in his past that, that said he deserved to be called a fraud. She had been called a, a fraud for a, a 34 years, approximately, at that point. People in the the, the, the the then aging uh, marathon swimming community remembered what she had done to Walter. It, it's pretty impressive how, like, after the day one stories, everybody uh, was going after, was saying, you know, this can't be true. Because this was, first of all, her fifth attempt. And if she couldn't do it when she was younger, why could, why could she do it decades, four decades later? At this point, she's like 64 years old. Correct. 64 years old. And she didn't film this one. Like when at the end of it, she claimed that oh, there wasn't there wasn't video of long long uh, stretches of it. And people, including a guy named Evan Morrison, who was a, a another uh, marathon swim, open water swimming um, 
observer, a, a big guy in the, in, the, in the realm. He came out in the New York Times and said, you know, who would not film something that's so pioneering as this? You know, she'd done her, pre she'd filmed her previous ones, but not this one. That doesn't make any sense. There were large gaps. There was a big storm that night. Her whereabouts weren't accounted for enough to satisfy the, the swimming. So it was, and basically it was, she, she was portrayed as a Rosie Ruiz. Rosie Ruiz was a Boston Marathon fraud uh, from the 70s, I believe, or late 70s. And she was portrayed as a, as a Rosie Ruiz in, in, in a swimsuit uh, kind of thing. So, Stefan, um, we should say that Diane Nyad was on our show in 2017, and this was after she'd written uh, a piece for The New York Times about sexual assault claims against a former coach of hers. And there have been has been a lot of pushback about the details in that story from Daniel Slosberg about how the things that she describes couldn't have necessarily happened how she described them. That doesn't that doesn't mean that she wasn't sexually assaulted. But you know, Stefan, that is where this gets a little bit tricky because we had her on this show specifically to talk about those claims from that New York Times piece. Yeah, and after that segment, which I will say was relatively short, we heard from Daniel Slosberg. Um, it was the first time I had heard of him. It was the first time I had heard of the claims against Diana Nyad's veracity uh, over her long career. And I looked at his blog, nyadfactcheck.com, and he later added a second one, Diana Nyad Fact Check Annex, and was like you, Dave, impressed with the detail and the level of research that he had done to sort of pick apart Diana Nyad's various claims over the years. Neither I nor Josh pursued the story, and but I'm glad that you did, Dave. I mean, Slosberg claims he, she fabricated a story about meeting a Holocaust survivor based on the way that she describes what this alleged Holocaust survivor said. Slosberg looked into the fact that, you know, she claimed this person had, um, you know, a number on their arm and the, w the way that she told the story that couldn't have possibly happened. I mean, he's dug into pretty much everything that she said for the last in public for the last 50 years. Is that a fair characterization? And, and like the, the smallest details too, right, Dave? I mean, like that 1968 story. Like you say, he, he, you say he, he checked it out. He didn't just check it out. He went to the Holocaust Museum. He went to the historians of, of Dachau, the, pr the premier historian, and he got their opinion. He is extremely thorough. It's not a, it, it, he doesn't want you to rely on his opinion. He has his opinions of Diane and I had, but his site gives you his opinion and then gives you links and newspaper clippings and expert testimony. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good read. It's entertaining. And then the funny stuff, you know, we're, we're on Holocaust, uh, and, and other, uh, not really fun parts of it, but to do justice to Daniel, he does have some fun with his crusade and the parts about showing the videos of, of her. I don't know if you watched these. I linked them in the story of her claiming to know how long it takes her to sing a Neil Young song uh, or uh, a thousand times down to the second. And she changes the amount of time it takes <laughs> from speech to speech down to the second, which is, I mean, it's just, it's just funny stuff. Well, the, the question, Dave, then is like, what's motivating Daniel Slosper? Why has he been on this crusade for the last seven years since he started his blogs. His background is in marathon swimming. He was a very, you know, accomplished guy as a teenager, like he was, or, you know, 20 year old, I think he was. Uh, he did, he did a swim that uh, faster than anyone else that, 
Catalina uh, Double, I believe it's called, out, out in California. He, all his friends as, as a kid and through his 20s were in the marathon swimming community, including a lot of people who were far more accomplished in his eyes and in the eyes of his peers than Nyad ever was. And they're anonymous, yet she's household and is having... Annette Benning and Jodie Foster starred a movie that will uh, was meant to uh, glorify her. If there's anything I cared as much about as Daniel cares about uh, marathon swimming, and I thought that the that the my pastime, my realm, the thing I had focused on for so many years of my life was being sullied by a fraud, by a con artist. Um, and with nothing, with with no result either. Like I might look into it, and I would keep at it until people notice. You know, people know. You know, see the truth. It, it, there's definitely some kind of religious crusade aura to to this whole pursuit of of Daniel. But but again, he does have fun with it, and the the, the people in the uh, marathon swimming world view it as as a a worthwhile uh, crusade. Again, how many articles was it again that you wrote about Dan Snyder? That was didn't they count in the uh, in the lawsuit? <laughs> they did. Yes, uh, there were 488 at the time. All right, just just. Just popped into my head for some reason. And now the air, pretty much all the air, is going to be sucked up by Diane and I add because this movie is going to be huge. And there's already talk of Oscars for Benning and Jodie Foster. And the interesting thing here, Dave, is that this movie proceeded, despite the existence of Slossberg's blog and the decades of claims against Diane and I add. And, and since the LA Times did a piece and you did a piece about Slossberg and Nyad's credibility. The movie people are kind of on their back foot now trying to defend the decision to make this film. And you mentioned Free Solo earlier, Dave. The folks behind this movie are the directors of Free Solo. Hollywood, you know, has does has a, a great history of, of, of making shit up and 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 the record, like the historical record, is sometimes written by Hollywood and is phony. And I, uh, another, uh, Daniel Slosberg reminded me of a guy in, in Northern Virginia who has the same obsession with Remember the Titans, which is a wonderful movie, but it is complete horse crap. It is just everything about it is made up, yet it is accepted as, you know, like the coach who, who's portrayed as some kind of Gandhi-like figure and went on to 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 have an amazing public speaking career, paid public speaking career, play, you know, pretending he's the Denzel Washington character, was actually fired from the job for assaulting children. He's not a Gandhi. He was like one of the most despised human beings ever. It's about the 1971 football team, which was the state champion of Virginia and one of the greatest high school football teams of all time. That is very true. But the movie is about how this school had just been integrated that year and, and they, they, the kids turned their racial animosities, uh, the energies that were devoted by others to racial animosities toward this football, this, this, this football project. And the truth is that the school had been integrated in 1965, six years earlier, and that it was consolidated to three whole schools in the city of Alexandria, becoming the, that year in 1971, became the biggest school in the state that one of the schools was the regional champion the year before. So everyone knew they were going to kick everybody's ass. They didn't need any kind of trumped up uh, uh, motivation. They, these guys were good already and they destroyed everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference is that um, with Remember the Titans, for whatever reason, before the movie came out and afterwards, that story that you just told just hasn't really permeated people's 
brains. Whereas with Nyad, I think there is this big publicity campaign, this anti-Diana Nyad campaign of longstanding before the movie came out. And so I think there is more of a kind of foundation for people to doubt the story and to doubt this movie. Do you, I mean, do you think that's right, Stefan? The directors are saying things like, we knew about these accusations against Nyad, and one of them told the Los Angeles Times, we brought our most clear-eyed, stringent, eth- ethical nonfiction backgrounds to look at it, and it really seemed irrelevant. Well, it's irrelevant, except they've allow- they're allowing Diana Nyad to use them for what may be her biggest con, something that will embed her as a hero in the eyes of millions who see this film, but don't have the ability to evaluate whether her stream of lies or deceptions or prevarications or whatever they are um, are not disqualifying to her celebrity and her status as a as a public figure. This is going to cement who she is in American culture. Do you guys think that the uh, the fact that the movie is based on a possibly phony premise uh, should impact whether or not Jodie Foster and Annette Bening are given Oscars? I think it's really hard to say without seeing the movie. It might end up being a completely moot point if the movie is just bad. Like, even if you take away all of the questions about whether it's based on a, a true story. I mean, I think Annette Benning and Jodie Foster are extremely popular and well-regarded actors uh, for a very long time. And so it'll be interesting to see not just the filmmakers, but once they go out and start doing publicity, how they talk about it, or whether these questions are put to them and whether they have to answer for things that they have nothing to do with, things that Diana and I had may have done or said. I got to think they they got to be learning a lot about Diana and I had now that they didn't know and just thinking, oh, shit. Dave McKenna writes for Defector. We'll post a link to his story, which is titled Diana Nyad's Swimming Brought Her Glory, Fame, and an Adversary Dedicated to Exposing Her Lies. McKenna, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, guys. You're my heroes. Thank you. Now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. There was a brief reference in our conversation with Aaron Schatz about uh, how the Patriots are bad, but there are other teams that are worse. One of those teams, maybe the team that is the worst, is the New York Giants and offensive lineman Evan Neal, the right tackle. Um, what what are some of the phrases that we use if we're a headline writer, Stefan, lashed out mm-hmm. at Giants fans saying, why would a lion concern himself with the opinion of a sheep? The person that's commenting on my performance, what does he do? Flip hot dogs and hamburger somewhere. Kind of a classic trope in the athlete versus fan battles over the years. And Evan Neal did later apologize. But flipping hot dogs and hamburgers is a noble profession, especially compared to playing for the New York Giants, don't you think? Oh, that's harsh. It's hard to be a professional football player. Not that it's not hard to flip hamburgers and hot dogs. Everybody has a role in society, Josh. We're just podcasters. Why not both? Why can't you do both? Remember back in your in your childhood when uh, all the professional athletes used to uh, flip hot dogs and hamburgers to pay the bills in the offseason? Boog Powell became very successful flipping barbecue after his career ended. 
So this week, we salute the athletes who flip hot dogs and hamburgers and the non-athletes who do the same. Stefan, what is your hot dog flipper? Do you flip? I guess you can flip both. More like a roll a hot dog, I guess. Hot dog roller. Hot dog hamburger flipper and hot dog roller. <laughs> All right, as you probably heard, Josh, there was an unfathomable mallet-headed coaching move in college football over the weekend. Ahead 20-17 to 17 with 33 seconds left. Miami could have taken a knee and run out the clock against Georgia Tech. Instead, the Hurricanes ran up the middle. Fumble recovered with 25 seconds to go. Four plays and 74 yards later, the Yellow Jackets were victorious 23-20. to 20. Don't! Miami head coach Mario Cristobal made no sense after the game. We were moving the pile and we had a pretty good drive going, he said. Wouldn't want to stop the momentum and, you know, win the game. Sometimes we can get carried away, Cristobal said. But I should have just stepped in and said, hey, take a knee. Which sounded a lot like he was blaming someone on his staff for the call. So he walked it back on Monday. USA Today's Dan Walken noted that Cristobal hadn't taken a knee in any of Miami's four wins this season. He also didn't take a knee in 2018 when he was coaching Oregon and the Ducks were up 31-28 on Stanford with 53 seconds left. Oregon could have knelt twice and punted, forcing the Cardinal to go the length of the field with no timeouts. Instead, they ran and fumbled and lost in overtime. Cristobal isn't alone. In 1996, Wisconsin coach Barry Alvarez didn't take a couple of knees with under a minute to play. Freshman running back Ron Dane fumbled, and the Badgers lost a few plays later to Northwestern, 34-30. Then there was this incredible game between Baylor and UNLV in 1999. Baylor ahead, 24-21, less than 20 seconds to go. UNLV, no timeouts. Let's listen. Instead of taking a knee with time running out, the Bears played for one more touchdown, and they got it. Only it was UNLV scoring the points. The Rebels have the football. UNLV's going to score a touchdown. The Rebels have the football. Kelly Pollock, ball of the ball. The Baylor running back who shouldn't have been handed the ball valiantly tried to bull his way into the end zone, was stripped at the one. Defensive back Kevin Thomas raced 100 yards down the left sideline for the winning touchdown. Unlike Cristobal, Baylor coach Kevin Steele immediately took the blame. Like Cristobal, he said his stupidity came from a belief that real football men don't take a knee. We were trying to create an atmosphere where we line up and get after people, Steele said. We had been telling the players all week we needed to get after people. We were trying to create an attitude of toughness, and we tried to hammer it in. Fun coincidence, Kevin Steele was the defensive coordinator on Mario Cristobal's coaching staff at Miami last year. They'll have something new to chat about at the college coach's holiday party. Uh, the proto-not-kneeling play, of course, is the miracle in the Meadowlands in November 1978. That was when quarterback Joe Pizarczyk of the Giants botched a snap and handoff with 31 seconds left, and defensive back Herm Edwards of the Eagles picked up the ball on one hop and ran 26 yards for the game-winning touchdown. Here's Don Crickey with the call. A giant victory, an upset win as the Giants lead 17 to 12. We're inside 30 seconds. The Eagles have no timeouts. Wait a minute. Here's a free fly. I don't believe it. The Eagles pick it up, and Herman Edwards runs it in for a touchdown. An incredible development, just like the opening game of the season when the New England Patriots were running the play, the game out against the Washington Redskins. A fumble. This is the most astounding development. This is even more unbelievable. 
All right, quick fact check. This was not just like what happened on the opening day of the 1978 season. In that game, the Patriots were ahead 14 to 9 with under three minutes to play when New England's Horace Ivory fumbled and Washington linebacker Brad Dusick ran it back 31 yards for a touchdown. The Patriots actually got the ball back and punted on fourth and 23 from their own 19 instead of going for it. Josh, so many weird things about the Pizarchik play. Everyone assumes that teams didn't do what we now call Call take a knee, but they did. Pizarchik on first down of that series did indeed fall on the ball three yards behind the line of scrimmage. That was the 1978 equivalent of a kneel down because the rules were different. A quarterback wasn't considered down until a defensive player had touched him. And on that play, one of the Eagles had pushed giant center Jim Clack back into Pizarchik. Uh, pushing and shoving ensued, a little little fisticuffs, and Giants coach John McVay was worried about Pizarchik getting injured. So he called a running play on the next down. Zonka ran for 11 yards on second down before the famous play on third, which was the identical call as on second down. McVay also said he was worried that the Eagles would fake an injury and stop the clock and the Giants would have to punt. The other great part of this is that some Giants told Pizarchik to ignore the third down play call, but he already didn't get along with an offensive coordinator, a guy named Bob Gibson, and was worried that he'd get benched if he didn't run the play. Gibson was fired the next day. What did change was the teams that week started practicing lining up a player several yards behind the line of scrimmage on a quarterback fall down, which became known as victory formation, though not right away. And I will give you some details on that if you want them. <laughs> the Well, that would be rid of me to not want them. Then, I know. It? That's why my, I set my, you up that way. My two thoughts are, number one, if Mario had a crystal ball, then maybe he wouldn't have done that. Number two, the the Baylor UNLV clip where they're like, they did get a touchdown, but for the other team, reminded me of the meme. I don't know if you've seen this one, where it's like someone call an ambulance, but not for me. Classic <laughs> meme. Anyway, so Stefan, what... What about that victory formation thing that I'm eager to learn about? Yeah, the first reference to victory formation that I or Hang Up and Listen lexicographer Ben Zimmer were able to dig up is a 1980 story in the Kenosha, Wisconsin News. Carthage Mm. College at the time had a uh, Native American nickname. Now it's called the Firebirds. They were ahead 13 to 7 over North Central College. Clock dwindling. Carthage, quote, went into their victory formation victory formation in quotes in which a running back lines up about 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage. He's the insurance defender in case of a fumble. The story added that Carthage quarterback Don Clary fell on the ball right after the snap, taking losses and running out the time for the last few plays. Helpful explanation. The lost yardage on those plays prevented him from gaining a hundred yards. Victory formation did not become sort of popularized in the media until uh, sometime in the 19 late eighties, 1990s. One thing I've never seen is that safety, the guy behind the quarterback in the victory formation, actually recover a fumble. I'm curious if that's ever happened. That's what. That's why it's preventative, Josh. It works. It never has to do anything. It scares the other team. Ooh, spooky. Yeah. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Patsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening.